in the tradition, in the grand television tradition of crossover episodes, we are colliding multiple universes, multiple Marvel universes to create one phantasmagorical podcast episode, combining all of the best of all of our bests. I'm so excited to use the microphone and just talk to artists, which is how I feel like <laughs> Mind Your Practice sounds to me like, hi, artists, I care about you so much. Yeah, so, so listeners to Mind Your Practice, if you're listening through the Mind Your Practice channel, you'll notice I'm going to sound very different because I'm going to be in conversation with one of my best friends, Nicole J. Georges. So I'm going to sound not like a soothing podcast host, but like me, maybe a maniac. And then <laughs> listeners to um, Sagittarian Matters will be hearing maybe just some new twists on our usual banter and usual hijinks. I can't wait. I love your book. Your book is coming out very, very soon. Make your art no matter what. And I was just last night, I, my brain was flattened out after a, a sad day in the world and a overwhelmed amount of work and art adjacent work. And then I, I was like, let me just, let me just get to the conclusion. Let me just skip around and I'm going to go to the conclusion. And the conclusion was your art will be waiting for you no matter what happens. And I'm in a moment where I'm doing a lot of projects that are art adjacent, but I have hardly any time for my practice. So reading that, reading your, your wise words that, you know what, even if I go away for a while and do other things to get distracted, my art will still be there waiting for me was so heartening. And it, it felt like a friend. Mm, I love that. I mean, I wrote, as you saw in the book, Make Your Art No Matter What is a self-help book for artists coming out on Chronicle Books, April 6th. Maybe it's already out when you're listening to it. Available wherever you buy fine books. Support your indie bookstore. Um, the, I made the conclusion of this book purposefully very, very brief because I wanted to summarize it all up very quickly. And you just said it so perfectly and succinctly that life happens and your art will be waiting. It's always waiting for you to return to it. I don't know if you remember from the movie Labyrinth at the very end of Labyrinth, after the girl's gone on this beautiful journey, she's alone in her dumb human bedroom, looking in the mirror, brushing her long, beautiful pony hair. And she's like, you know, what is she's basically like, I wish you guys were with me. And they're like, well, should you need us? Uh, should you need us? And they they pop their little Muppet heads in and they're like, she's like, well, I need all of you. And they're like, well, then let's party. And all the Muppet monsters show up to her room. And as a kid, I always remember looking at that and being like, I need them. I need them right now. Mm -hmm. And I feel mm -hmm. like through anonymous fuzzball, I'm building that for myself a little bit. But that moment of your book of just saying like your art is always there. Like you could draw animals for yourself. You could draw friends for yourself. You could draw experiences anytime. It felt like that moment. Mm. I, you know, I, that's really beautiful because my labyrinthine conclusion is that your artist self, which I sort of think of as like an extra soul you're born with, <clears throat> which is a Jewish concept about Shabbat, that on Shabbat you have an extra soul, which really? I love. My rabbi always talks about that. Yeah. And I think artists have this extra soul that's following you along. And so artists are never alone because you always have your artist soul with you. The part of you that's seeing in the world and observing and experiencing it in this 
this rich contextualized textured way that's different than the rest of the world. And so I, I, I think, I think you have an extra soul and that's always with you. Holy cannoli. It's just a matter of acknowledging it. Yeah. And, and, and committing to not abandoning it. And, and that doesn't mean a, that doesn't mean a punishing rigidity. It's just like Jennifer Conley and the labyrinth looking in the mirror and saying, I see you, I see you artist self. I can return to you anytime. I see you. You're there. Should you need us? Uh, yes. Should you need us? <laughs> yeah. So your artist, your artist self, your artist soul, your extra soul is always there. And it's always there, even though you don't know it sometimes, or maybe didn't know it in the past, but that part of you, it's not going anywhere. And life will, as life does, it will just take you out of your practice, sickness, illness, a bad day, a good day, new love death, depression, the world's events, a busy time in your work, your children, anything can take you out. But every day is an invitation back to it every single day. And so if you don't make it this one, you have the next one after. That's beautiful. You know, I do sometimes feel like I have too many, kind of like the way you feel like there's so many books that you want to read during this lifetime. I feel like there's so many stories I need to tell. And sometimes I'm like, oh, God, the stories are just sliding through my fingertips, like sand through the hourglass. Like, I don't even, I can't draw that story anymore, but it has to exist. I got to keep going. Um, right. And so it's nice to know they're all just, they're just there. They're just waiting. They're just there. They're just waiting. And, and I think the reason why the first chapter in the book is all about time is because I've heard that from so many artists, my clients and my friends, that it feels sometimes like there's not enough time in the day, week, year, lifetime to make all the work that a person wants to make. Which is, like you said, my parallel fear, fear of I don't have enough lifetimes to read all the books that I want to read because I can only read so many books per day, per, per week, per lifetime. Struggling with time is the first thing I grapple with in this book because time is a universal trouble for us as humans because we have finite time. <clears throat> and so the time, the time chapter, it's not just I don't know how to manage it, although that's present for a lot of people. It's a lot of also zooming out to the existential relationship with time that artists have. Speaking of the existential relationship with time that artists have, your book has something special that I don't see in a lot of self-help books for artists, which is you have a chapter about death and God. And I know on Sagittarian Matters, you and I, we actually went to Caitlin Dowdy's apartment, one of the pioneer, one of the pioneers of the death acceptance movement for this generation. We went to her apartment and talked all about death and death acceptance. But can you talk about why you felt like you wanted to include that chapter and how it relates to how you speak to artists? Yes, yes. So the last chapter in the book is about death and God. And this was a late edition. This was not in the proposal I sent to Chronicle. I don't think it was... I can't remember. I can no longer recall the chapter it replaced or how the chapters sort of got moved around as I started writing the manuscript. But I wanted to have this chapter because for one thing, death and God or and I mean God, when I say God, I mean little g God, the concept of God or universe or spirit or ever, of afterlife, whatever humans, however humans understand it with whatever language, the placeholder is little g God. But death and God are what artists have been grappling with since time immemorial. That is what artists have been trying to understand and make sense of. If you think about art history, what is art history? It's artists, 
in the European tradition, for example, grappling with heaven and God. And in other parts of the world, it's other cultures, the artisans and artists capturing their understanding of God and afterlife and how humans relate to it. So death and God are the cornerstones. They're like the foundations of the history of art making. And so that was one reason what I, why I wanted to include it. Another reason is it's very important for me, for my clients, for them to consider their spiritual life. And that can be anything. When I ask when I ask my clients to write about and think about their life spiritually, I tell them however that makes sense to you, whatever ways that makes sense to you. And that may include a part or all of your creative practice. I think for a lot of artists, a way they connect to themselves and to other people and the world, which is sort of my definition of spirituality, I think it is their art practice is a conduit to that. And I like for an artist to consider all or some of their creative practice as part of their spiritual life, because I like to remove money as the only barometer of why something is valuable. And for artists, there's so many reasons their practice is crucial to their life. And I think if they can understand it as this spiritually takes care of me too, then there can be less pressure or value judgment if it's not making money or if it's not making the money they think it should, or if it's not getting the likes and social media they think they should. When we can see something as having spiritual value, I think we can have a sort of a greater understanding and acceptance of it. So that that was another reason. And then finally, I'm an advocate of Caitlin Doty, every, our favorite feminist mortician and writer and advocate, is a big part of uh, something called the Order of Good Death, which advocates for a death, a death positive movement, meaning accepting death, accepting that we will, we will die, we all have to die, and everybody and everybody, everything has to die, and that we live in a culture in the U.S. that is the dominant culture here is has death refusal and death denial, and bad things come from that. Bad things in capitalism come from death denial and the and the, and the desire and illusion of control over the planet and resources and immortality. So I personally have a, an active death practice where, for example, one of the things I do every day, I take a moment in this death journal to write down something about my death or that I will die or my mortality or a quote, something that's just, it's just a momentary pause to remember I will die. And I find this to be very liberating because the other side of that is, so how do I want to live? Who do I want to be? Am I being that person? Who do I want to spend my life with? Am I with those people? It encourages me to live a little bit more in the present and meaningfully. It does not do a thing, nor would I advocate it to do a thing of like, we're going to die. I'm going to go max out all my credit cards. You know what I mean? Like, that's not what I'm advocating for, but just a just accepting this reality and then pausing to ask, am I living how I want to live with the people I want to be with being the person I want to be? Mm. Long answer to a short question, but that's why death and God appear in this book. But I think some of these answers might be helpful for our listeners who have advice questions for us today. Um, yes. It, it, can I introduce the French braid effect that we're going to engage today? Please. Okay. So the theme of our conversation I like to think of it as the French braid effect. And that is my professional life is about helping and serving artists using my counseling training. I have a master's degree in counseling psychology and all of my experience working in the art world, many different art worlds in a lot of different capacities for the past going on 15 years. And so in a helping <clears throat> profession, 
my experience is that I cannot turn those skills or help or advice on myself. Much as the way I could braid, I could French braid your hair, Nicole, but I cannot French braid my own hair. Mm. Mm. It's really deep to me. That might not be, I, I think Jennifer Conley with her pony hair would also be like, I get it. Well, you know what? I have, I have just like this childish streak where I'm like, well, you could French braid your bangs if you really. <laughs> I've tried to French braid my own hair. I could ex- not expertly, but adequately French braid another's. And I can't do it on myself. Who barbs the barber? Who barbs the barber? <laughs> Who I, I like to be tickled. It doesn't, I like somebody <laughs> to tickle my arm, not in a weird way, but like, I like to have my arm tickled. It's hard to get people to do that, especially in a pandemic. My wife won't do it. But I can't tickle myself. It doesn't have the same effect. So I'm here to tickle you. (laughs) We're going to I have advice questions. I need advice because my book is coming out, but I can't turn. I can't tell myself these things. It doesn't work that way. So you are going to ask me and I'm I'm ready to tickle you. If people haven't seen the documentary tickled side note, it's a (laughs) wonderful documentary It's so scary, but it's nothing that will probably ever happen to you. And so I really recommend it. No women die. Oh, good. Okay. I love a documentary where no women die. No women die. Some men may or may not be blackmailed. That's it. Oh, interesting. It's an incredible documentary. It's not about Beth Pickens. So I have prepared some questions. Okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. But they're going to come from they're going to come from you. As if they're coming from outside listeners, and then we're going to answer them. That sounds great. So listeners, if you're a mind or practice listener and you don't know, my name's Nicole. I have been doing an advice column for a very, very long time. I have been giving advice in my podcast, Sagittarian Matters, for uh, at least four and a half years. I have had advice columns in my own zine as a video series. And from Into, I had something called Queer Abbey. So I have answered a lot of advice questions. I love solicited advice, and I am ready to help this mysterious listener who may or may not be Beth Pickens. <laughs> we and, and astrologically, we both love to tell people what to do. And this is a way to do that in a not harmful way. Yeah, I do. You know, I do try to practice not giving unsolicited advice. And when I do give unsolicited advice, I'm now able to say, I'm sorry, this is unsolicited. And so people have a chance to say, stop it, because I don't want anyone to think I know how to live their life better than them. But if someone does want my opinion about what they should do, I'm happy to tell them my opinion. Right. right. They could take what they like and leave the rest. Exactly. Exactly. We're so healthy. Yeah. All right. (laughs) Let's take it away. Let's do it. Okay. I'll read the first one. Okay. Dear Sagittarian Matters. I have a new book coming out during the pandemic. This sucks logistically and emotionally. What do I do? Signed, bummed in Birmingham. Okay. Logistically and emotionally. Okay. Dear bummed in Birmingham. First of all, congratulations on having a book coming out. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. It's a big deal to pitch a book, to have a publisher, congratulations, to have completed this project. And now I hope it's something you're really proud of. And like Beth was saying before, it doesn't matter. You know, it's like you can show up, do your best, and then let go of the results. And spiritually, you have done something incredible for yourself you should be very proud of. And I hope that your book reaches some people 
who really feel nourished by it. And I feel I feel as though it will. Yeah. With really big durational projects like books, like films, like albums, when you're making them, you have lots of imaginations. You have, you have fantasies and, and ideas of what it will be like when it comes out. And so likely this book was written and ready to be published far before the pandemic happened. And we just, none of us had any idea what was coming. Nobody knew what was coming. And lots of people have had really big things big professional and creative celebratory things happen over the past year and would not have wanted it to happen in this context. People's books, their 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 shows, their albums, like all the things. There's been a lot of collective disappointment. And so for one thing, it's real and I'm sorry. And for another thing, you're so not alone. So there's wisdom to be drawn from other people who have also felt that disappointment. And emotionally disappointing and a celebration. And then logistically, again, everybody has had to change their way of promoting the thing that they have made. I mean, the good side of this, my Pollyanna side of this is to let you know, dear listener, that people are stuck at home and they are really thirsty and hungry for anything, for media, for something to take them away. And also for me, now that part of my brain is not taken up by that orange troll who I had to read about in the news every day, I have more space to enjoy art. And though you may not be able to enjoy like a lavish book tour where you get to see fans, they're still there. And it may be that, you know, your book or your project's promotional time has a larger arc than what you had imagined in your mind. But, you know, I think it hurts us when we get too rigidly attached to an idea of how something's going to be, especially over the past year in the pandemic when, you know, like like we've said on Sagittarius Matters before, Capricorn Matters, you know, you make plans and God chuckles this year, especially. So it may not be the book release that you wanted, but, you know, reading a book is like hanging out with somebody. And I think everyone really misses the world. And so them getting to hang out with you in a book is such a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think also for people who are disappointed with how their big project is coming out uh, and how that is different than what they imagined, when something's different, it doesn't mean that it's automatically going to be terrible, which sometimes fear can lead us to believe that, well, this is not what I pictured, so it must be bad. But it's possible that it will be great in a different way or even better than you imagined. And I think that often there, whatever it is will be the middle path. It's not going to be every fantasy coming true. And then it's not going to be every bad thing happening either. It's going to be somewhere in the middle, like most things in life. Yeah. I feel like one of the big lessons of my life is accepting, A, having gratitude for things I didn't ask for. So like remembering things that weren't on my Santa Claus wish list of, you know, dear Lord, here's what I want. Now I lay me down to sleep. Other things that I got without asking, I'm trying to be very appreciative and have gratitude for those, but also being able to accept other people or the world's support or love languages, even when it's not my exact way that I wanted to receive it. Mm. So it may be that this person's project's coming out. They wanted a certain kind of fanfare that they're used to seeing, but maybe it's going to come in other ways and they just have to kind of learn to just hold on to that and not take that for granted. The practice of how can we recognize gifts coming in packages we were not prepared for, we weren't looking for. Yeah, which is, you know, it's hard, especially if you're like, well, no, I I think if if my numbers are this, if my sales are this, if this many people share it or like it or post about it, then that means that will be a success. But also, I mean, I, 
I do want to challenge every listener to remember that sometimes our expectations are a moving target. And so sometimes, you know, you get the thing that you exactly wanted, like you got covered by whatever newspaper or whatever, and it still feels like not a lot. Right. You still feel empty. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's just like the Instagram thing where it's like hitting that, um, that, what is that called? I'm making a jackpot machine. What's the jackpot machine called? <laughs> I'm just going to keep pulling the handle of the a slot machine, <laughs> slot machine. It's just like the slot machine effect of like Instagram where it's like, you know, you keep looking because you might get a hit of adrenaline right. from like a bunch of people liking your posts or sharing it. But then that goes away really fast. And it's a little bit the same, at least for me, having been like, if only I could be in the New York Times, right. that's it. And then I have and then it's it wears off. <laughs> it's good for like three days. Or later, I look at it as a reason to be like, why am I not getting more? Look, mm. I was in the New York Times. Right. I actually just change my expectations and then use it as a weird weapon against myself to compare and despair anyway. Totally, totally. To some like imaginary future where I don't know what I feel like I should have. I don't know if I feel like I should have the damn paparazzi outside of my house because I wrote a graphic novel. This is like one time I, I realized that I'm often disappointed and I might be on a tangent. Welcome to Sagittarius. I feel like I, I've realized at some point I'm often disappointed at the end of a semester because I feel like my students didn't appreciate it. And I one day I sat down with myself. I was like, what would make me feel appreciated? And I realized it was literally the students hoisting me on their shoulders, yelling hip, hip, hooray. <laughs> and Carrie be like, Woo! you were like, Carrying it's either with society or I have failed. <laughs> Yeah, it's just a straight up them carrying me around campus saying this is the best teacher ever. She just changed my life. Or I'm like, they all can see I'm an imposter. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. And this was of no help to them. Mm. And they just thought about how much they hated me the whole semester. It's really one. of, And I realized that with that kind of black and white thinking, it was really hard for me to accept the other smaller gestures that I was really getting along the way. Mm. Totally. Oh my God. That's so good. That makes so much sense. And I also know from, from my work with my clients, I have clients who are famous. I have clients who got every big grant that you can think of. I have clients who have a big gallery or a big career or whatever thing that a person may think once I get that, then I'll feel this. And it's never true because outside things don't change our insides. When we try to make the outside world fix something inside, we're left disappointed because the excitement will wear off. And then, like you said, you'll say, well, why am I not still getting this thing or why am I not getting the next big thing? Or another consequence I find is that I didn't appreciate that. I don't deserve it. I'm terrible. Right. There's just so many ways for us to beat ourselves up. But these external rewards of uh, how many books you sell or who's covering it and what they're saying about it, that will hit. It'll feel good for a second, maybe. And then it'll wear off. And so I think it's all an inside job, as you and I know. Everything's an inside job. Yeah. Not like in a 9-11 way, but I mean, like we have to do our reparative work on the inside, not, not outside. It's just true. I do want to say one more thing, which is a deep cut Sagittarius Matters when I interviewed Corin Tucker. We talked about the difference between accomplishment versus success mm -hmm. and just being able to have the feeling of accomplishment and be like, I finished that big project and really being able to feel that as opposed to that external praise for that project. Right. The inside feeling versus the external thing. I realize I keep doing the Michael Barbaro, the daily podcast go, mm, and I'm really going to, I'm going to stop doing that for the rest of this crossover episode as a treat. Well, you're, you're welcome to do it. It makes me feel like you're hearing me. And also I know that in therapy school, you practiced your facial expressions. You have to do a lot of nonverbal, minimal encouragers and nonverbal uh, affirmations. 
Mm -hmm. I try not to do those because when I'm seeing clients over Zoom, like they can't hear it, you know, because of the way the Zoom audio works. Like you can't have two voices coming through at once. <laughs> so my, mm, those are really getting lost. So I'm just going to, I'm going to cease and desist on that. Is it or is it not true that when you were in therapy school, you got in trouble for making too big of facial expressions? Yes. What? <laughs> in graduate school is where I learned in my, in my practicum where we had our first real clients, we had to videotape our sessions and then we'd go through them in excruciating detail in class, which for listeners who went through an MFA writing program, you will understand it's the painful experience of the workshop. Same thing in, in, in counseling psychology training. So we'd be watching the VHS and the film is focused on the, the, the student, not the client. So we're just watching me the whole time and listening to me and what I'm saying. And that my professor had to gently tell me that my exaggerated facial expressions, which up into age 24, I did not know I had, would could be overwhelming to a client. And I had to learn to... Um, kind of restrain my facial features. I didn't know I was doing such exaggerated eyebrow and eyeball things all the time. I had no idea. And at first I was like, you know, at first you might feel defensive or insulted, but then I was like, oh, this is just a, this is just a tool. Your facial expressions in a therapeutic environment are a tool and I just have to learn how to use it appropriately. And so I'm very aware of that whenever I'm in session with a client, like how my face might be reacting to something they're saying. Is this why you've gotten Botox over your whole face? And oh, right cool. now, just, just the tiniest part of your mouth is opening and closing, I but the rest of you smile. is staying totally still. I can barely smile. I had to Botox my entire face to relax my... But you know, you've seen my... I am accused often of having like kind of crazy eyes because when I open my eyes really wide, it's a little frightening. Well, I've only recently learned from my spouse that I also do that crazy eyes. <laughs> Wait, even if I'm not saying anything, if I'm hearing something that I find extreme that my eyes will be like, don't like a cartoon eyes. Yeah, your just like eyebrows all white. like fling up your forehead. And yeah, I have no poker face, but I've learned to have more of a poker face professionally. I also realized that I do tilt my head sideways when I'm listening to people just from it's, watching. It's Zoom. the, it's the therapy, it's the therapy 40 degree angle. And then Maybe a gentle just... nod. You, you mm. turn it 40 degrees and then a gentle nod. For some reason, if your head is perfectly upright and you nod, it's not the same therapeutic effect. <laughs> Beth, we have another question. Oh, yeah. Will you read this one? Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Dear Sagittarian Matters and Capricorn Matters and Mind Your Practice, how do I detach from inevitable bad reviews on Amazon and Goodreads? Oh, yeah. Signed upset in the upper peninsula. Oh, all the way Listener. up in the UP worried well, about Amazon. You have a story need, about this. Well, I need to tell you <laughs> it can't get any worse than mine. I mean, knock on wood, Jesus Christ. My mother has given both of my books one star Amazon reviews. Has she read them? Unclear. However, she did go out of her way with her real name. You can go look right now and check out her other reviews. She likes a lot of other stuff. She <laughs> so likes she's not just uniformly disliking things. It's very specifically her child's books. Yeah. Here's what I have to say. Don't read your fucking reviews. This is like a classic RuPaul saying, unless they're paying your bills, pay them no mind. And also like RuPaul, you know, maybe not everyone's guru, but for me, I remember RuPaul being like, I try not to attach to people's praise or 
the bad things they have to say about me. Because if I get in on believing either of those things, that it takes me off center of what of me. And I think it's really important to just like hold all those things very lightly. So if people are like, you're the best, you're the best, have gratitude, but hold that lightly because it's not necessarily the truth. Neither of those things is it makes you more valid or less valid. Your art just gets to exist. Um, but you cannot read Goodreads reviews. You cannot read your Amazon reviews. You just can't. And you cannot read your podcast reviews. I just, because you'll believe it. Whatever people say, I have Goodreads and Amazon reviews for my books from people that weren't meant to read my books. The things they said haunt me to this day. I still will argue with those people in my mind. They're people I've never met. They weren't supposed to pick up my book. They weren't meant to be in my audience. They weren't who I was writing for, obviously. I'm just, I, I can't. I just, I recommend to everyone, don't read your reviews. Don't engage with trolls. Do whatever you need to do to not do that. Right, right. I love everything that you're saying. I agree. Not, atta- not attaching to positive feedback or critical feedback. It, it reminds me though, it reminds me of Anne Friedman and her disapproval matrix which she created in order to have a visual metaphor to decide, should I pay attention to this critical feedback? And it's basically like on one axis, it's, is this person somebody in your field that actually knows anything? And then the other axis is, um, how important are they to you? And, and I, I think I'm getting, I might be getting those a little bit off, but essentially it was, it's to help you detach from trolls because, it's true. People who are moved to say things on the internet are usually moved, like for a book review on Goodreads or Amazon, for example, either because it was the best thing they ever read that year and they are so moved they have to say something or they hated it. And so we just get these edges of the bell curve and you just miss everyone in the middle who had a positive experience. And our human brains, as we know from listening to so many Tara Brock-like people, our brains are looking for the trolls. We are looking for the critical feedback. We're looking for the one person who hates something so we can ignore the 999,000 who loved it. And we will then fight, be haunted by, as you said, and fight with that person forever. So it's true. I think not reading any reviews. And then when it's somebody high on that disapproval matrix of, oh, this is a person in my field giving me a critical review, like we're lucky to be reviewed. It, it, it is a, it, it's a privilege to have a, a critic, a person who actually is trained in writing criticism to consider your book. And most books never get it. So in that case, if you're like, wow, I've got this review and I'm scared to read it. Uh, what I hear from a lot of people is they'll ask a friend to read it for them and then tell them the highlights. This is what I do with emails from my mom. Mm, yep. You got to put it through a filter and somebody just tell you, here's what you need to know, or there's nothing you need to know. But yeah, you know, no. And also everybody I know from my first book, because I did look at the terrible reviews on Amazon thinking it, I would laugh. No, you're not going to laugh. You're going to feel terrible. But what you do is go look at everything else they're reviewing. So the person who hated the political content of my first book, because they were probably a Trump voter and therefore should not be reading my book, they also went on to review things like hardware and like King Arthur flower. I was like, this person does not matter to me. They're, the world is like 6 billion people. This person, we are not meant to be together in this lifetime. I mean, if people ever want to do that as a fun exercise, this is how I found out that my mom reviewed my book poorly. Because if you look, generally the one star reviews are from people that are a little, a little cut loose from reality. 
a little bit like dancing to the beat of their own drummer. And so usually if you look, I, I would look because I was like, I want to see this person's other like totally bananas reviews of things. And then I was like, wait a minute. I know this person. Wait a <laughs> second. She gave birth to me. She gave birth to me. Yeah. Don't look at reviews. Don't ever read Goodreads or Amazon anything reviews of your own stuff. And then with reviews that you're actually curious about, if you're actually being critically considered by someone who can do that, you can have somebody else read it and tell you what to do or, or tell you like, oh, this is great. You should definitely read it. It's really nice. It's really sweet. They really considered and carefully read your book, which again, that's a privilege. I didn't have critical reviews of my first book. It would have been so cool to have some really thoughtful, smart person write. Oh no, actually somebody did. That's right. It was in a place that I found out about a long time later. It was like in some academic thing. And they had written such a thoughtful, carefully considered review. It, it was, it felt it felt as if a brilliant person had just like talked about me, which they did. A brilliant person had written about and talked about my thinking in this long review. And, and those things are not supposed to be all glowing because they're critically considering you in a body of work in a period of time. And I wrote to that person. I was like, thank you. You clearly read this so carefully and really placed it in a context. And I'm so grateful for your time. I think that this is an important note because also, um, you found out about it later. I found out about my mom's review much later. Neither of those things changed our day-to-day -day lives. And neither of those things, whether good nor bad, actually made a difference as to whether or not you need to still keep writing a book or not. Like you still needed to write your next book, whether or not you got that incredible review. I was still needed to be an artist and write my next book, whether or not my mom thought I should, you know, cut off my hands and stop writing and drawing. Um, I just... It's valuable to think like, okay, like what's my actual day-to-day -day life? What's my actual reality? And do I need to keep writing these books or not? Are they reaching my actual friends? Do I feel happy with them? Oh my gosh. It, it reminds me briefly. I had a good friend that I worked for many, many years ago and she had this burly biker boyfriend who he would just have these witticisms that we would marvel over how genius they were. <laughs> and he was just an unlikely source of life advice for both of us. And I remember she would tell me that anytime she was tripping over someone, like really obsessing over a person, real or imagined, he would say to her, well, they can't eat you and they can't put you in jail. And we would just like laugh about this. I was like, oh yeah, this person can actually, they can't eat me and they can't put me in jail. <laughs> like, this person has no consequence in my life. I'm giving them the power by obsessing over them. I think you've told me this before, but you said they can't kill you. And I felt like that was really, that was really oh, yeah, helpful. They can't no, do but that I like either. knowing the sort, the original source was he can't, they can't eat you. <laughs> <laughs> we have another question, right? Yeah. What's our next question? Dear Sagittarian Matters, other books are getting tons of press and mine is not. How do I not spiral and compare? Signed, worried, and Worcester. Mm. Am I saying Worcester right? I think I you are. I was wondering. I was I getting so. ready for you to say that. Worcester. Okay. And wor worried in Worcester. And Worcester sauce. Worried in Worcester. Um, oh, compare and despair. Oh, my gosh. And it just, I just, I, I beg this listener to just sit back and, again, just think about accomplishment versus success and think about your favorite pieces of art. Think about your favorite book. Just your favorite book. Do you give a flying fuck? how much press that book got when it came out. Do you care at all? Like your favorite book that when you finish it, 
you put it down, you actually just want to hold it because it has that energy and it's helped you so much and you love the characters and now they live with you and it's opened you up to new ideas. Do you care how many likes that got on Facebook or Instagram or do you care if that person made a fucking TikTok that everybody shared? <laughs> no, all that is extra. All that is extra. It's just a way. I mean, I, I feel this. I get this FOMO. You know, I have books that I'm just like, I want this to get in as many hands as possible. How come that bozo is getting this press and I'm not getting this press? And the reason it's just luck. Sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's a zeitgeist. Why did I ever even get my first book deal? Because Alison Bechdel had toiled in obscurity for 25 years and then put out Fun Home about her lesbian life with a dead dad. And so then when I came tripping up the road and I had a lesbian story about a dead dad, someone's like, can we give you a book deal? Because we think this might be a gold rush. Like, that's the only reason why that happened. It wasn't because I was more talented than particular people. You know, it just was it just doesn't matter. Yeah. It just I don't it's it's not it's not a meritocracy as you have said many times before, Beth. And sometimes it's a lot of politics and money. Sometimes it's people spending like $9,000 on a publicist and having a publisher that sunk so much money into it that they need to like pedal their asses off to sell it. That sometimes that's all it is and it's not personal. It's yeah. not personal. No. Never personal. Never personal. And there's often no rhyme or reason into what gets a ton of attention, although it's usually related to money. Um, and sometimes great things get a ton of attention and we're really excited and we're glad to find them or we're glad that it's getting support. And other times it's like, I mean, just look at television. There's so much terrible TV that gets all the seasons. <laughs> and then like, there'll be a really great show and it, it disappears, you know? So what's happening with other people's projects truly has nothing to do with yours. Like truly they, they're not intersecting in that way. It's one person getting a big New York times book review doesn't mean that meant yours didn't get one. <laughs> like they're, they're on completely different paths and trajectories. And when books come out, like when music comes out, when anything comes out, there's usually a handful of things that are in the cycle and those things get more things and more things and more things. And that's why you hear about the same album, the same music, the same performance, the same book, the same movie, you hear about it over and over and over again. And then you miss a ton in any mainstream or even off mainstream press. And I, you and I both are in this interesting, we're both more or less generation Catalano, Xennials. So we both had our teen years and early adult lives pre-internet and early internet. And so we remember a time when there was some cultural advantage to having obscurity attached to something. Do you remember this? Like that it was, if you found something your friends didn't know about, that was like, an added thing. It added value to that thing. And I don't know if that exists anymore. And I wonder if it'll come back for young, for young generations as the, as the internet wears on. Cause now that's not an added thing, right? Like everybody wants attention, 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 but it used to be to find a book and love it. And nobody knew about it. Nobody had read it. It wasn't anywhere. You would be like, Oh my God, this is incredible. I found this thing. I'm the coolest person alive that I get to tell everybody about it. And so I, I think there's, I think it's fun to think about it that way of how much something means to me when I'm advertised it constantly by every podcast and the newspaper and everywhere else, the newspaper, the newspaper <laughs> in, in Randolph Hearst newspaper. Um, and then what does it mean to me when a friend passes to me, when a friend's like, you're going to love this, you have to read this. And it has a different, it has a different value and sentimentality. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, right now, there are certain things that I read or watch because I want to be part of a cultural conversation with other people I know. And I just, you know, I just want to be part of that cultural conversation. It's not it's not necessarily because it's the most beloved thing. My favorite thing used to be going to um, there in Portland, and I'm sure in every town there's a used library bookstore and the used library bookstore. It's basically things that are no longer useful for the library. But I found so many like Linda Berry books from the 80s there. And those books were so valuable to me, made me feel so seen was so special. I was like hoarding. I was like, I can't believe I found these books. I've never even heard of these books because they were so out of print. But also she had made them in obscurity. And, you know, now Linda Berry is having like a there's a renaissance where she got the MacArthur Genius Grant, but she just kept making her art. You just have to keep making your art and your art's going to be special to whoever finds it. The person who needs to find it is going to find it. I really feel like there's a lid to every pot. There is like the weirdest podcasts, the weirdest books, the weirdest whatever. And people who find it feel so comforted and at home. And um, I just, I really think people need to make their art no matter what. I'm going to write a book called that. Make your art no matter what part two or make make your stuff no matter what by Nicole J. Yeah. <laughs> Basically, I'm going to do, <laughs> I'm going to do chapters about all of these things. <laughs> I'm going to just paraphrase poorly. Right. Well, and and it just comes down to the the phrase that you and I know so well, compare and despair. When you compare your insides to somebody's outsides, you're going to feel lacking. Yeah. And it's inevitable. It's just a human experience, but we don't have to stay there. We don't have to feed it. Yeah. I do have like a punishing sort of a self-blaming thing you could do, which is just look at whatever the other person has and try to follow the steps and the path and be like, okay, what were their steps? What was their path? Am I willing to do those things? If I'm not willing to do those things, or if that's not my identity, uh, then uh, then I just have mm-hmm. to shut up about it, actually. Like, if I'm like, <laughs> how come, you know, like, how come that person gets X, Y, Z? And it's like, okay, well, let's look at the steps. Are you willing to do a book about that thing? Is it your place to do a book about that thing? Uh, you know, who, what literary journal, what things did they do before they got their agent, before they got their publisher? Like what if you're not willing to do those things or try to do those things, then you got to go sit down. Right. And I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention a tool we both love, which is gratitude, gratitude lists at, for actually changing your thoughts. And then thus you feel better. Like what, wherever I am in my life, I, I heard Ellie Wiesel, not to invoke Ellie Wiesel in our, in this conversation, but say like, we can't be grateful for everything that happens to us, but we can be grateful in every moment. And so if I am working to have gratitude, not for everything, but for in any moment it's possible, then everything else, it's irrelevant what happens to anybody else that's great that I don't have. Like, it just doesn't matter because I'm steeped in the the good stuff of, of my own life. And if I find consistently that I'm not grateful for what's in my life, then I have some choices to make. I have some choices to make about how to build a life for myself that I can be more grateful for. Um, and like we were talking about with a previous question, the other people who are getting these reviews and best t- sellers and all this other stuff, it's going to wear off for them too. This stuff, these moments are fleeting and they pass. And truly, for, we watch, we, we know about Harry and Meghan. We live in Los Angeles. We know about fame. Fame is a to me, a punishment. It is a 
terrible thing that can happen to a person getting famous very fast. So that's actually not my personal goal. And um, there's something there's something about not being too much in the public eye that I would like to I would like to keep personally. Well, good luck. This book's going right to the top. <laughs> but also, then it's stressful for your next thing. I mean, and here's a just just a little bit of a the grass isn't always greener. You know, if somebody gets a huge book contract right out the gate, if or like a bunch of money, if they don't sell enough copies to make that money back, they're never getting another book deal for that much money. Like they just and it's it totally sucks if the publisher over like over commits or over imagines how much you're going to sell and you don't hit that mark. That's a lot of stress for your next. Where's your next book going to go? Who knows? And or if you have tons of success with your first book, then that can really hedge you in capitalism, getting involved in your craft, being like, okay, well, you need to make something else that's going to sell just as much. And what if your next idea that's your passion project is not that same kind of idea that's quite as sticky as the first one? Yeah, that external, those external success markers put a lot of pressure on people and and can be can be quite stifling. There, you're right. There is a there's a flip side to getting these big external things including that it's the moment of it feeling good is fleeting and passes and including that it puts a lot of pressure. And sometimes people feel like, how do I measure up to this, this outside understanding or expectation of me? I'm not good at answering fan mail, but I want to say the letters that people have sent me when they finished my books, when they care enough to go and find my email address on my website and write me a cold call email being like, here's what your book meant to me. Those are the things that make me feel like I did something good. That wasn't just for me being like, I expressed these feelings for five years and now I'm at home alone. And then it's nice because reading a book is such a solitary enterprise that people spending that time with me and then letting me know is really valuable. So listeners, we always say this on the podcast, but if you fan mail, fan fan mail, mail, send your faves fan mail, send fan mail to people, even if you never hear back from them, we can pretty much guarantee it's being read and and needed. I always need it. I often don't know what to say, or I read it at a time when I'm feeling so low that I'm like, that's nice. And then, but I don't have the energy to write back. And then I'm also like, well, how do I write back? What do I say? Thank you so much. Right. And then, what, how creepy sometimes, like if you send fan mail and then the author's like, thank you. What did you think about blah, blah, blah? You're like, ah, this is, don't break the fourth wall. I'm just a fan sending you fan mail. You don't need to write back. <laughs> Why, thank you. Well, I read that <laughs> Philip Pullman response to all of his fan mail and I was like oh no I don't does he or does his secretary I don't know that's that's a good maybe that's a good question but also I was like well I need Philip Pullman to finish his next book so I need him to actually get off Twitter where I found this out (laughs) stop and I need him to stop responding to fan mail and just get to work making his next book because that's actually what I what I need Beth, I'm going to ask you an advice question about my podcast, my project. Oh, yes. Okay. Okay. Ready when you are. So, Beth, we've been talking about this wonderful book that's coming out, but I have something coming out that I want to ask you an advice question about. And you have a drop date very soon, right? Will you tell yes. us about it? Relative Fiction is my podcast adaptation of Calling Dr. Laura. It's with Oregon Public Broadcasting, and it comes out, in theory, March 29th. Will it be done by then? I think so. It's coming out March 29th. You can find it wherever you find your podcast. 
This is like a very in-depth, sensitive family story about my family lying to me about my dad being dead his whole life, my whole life, and then what I found once I started looking. And so my question for you, Mary Potter, Beth Pickens, is my sisters and I are having some anxiety over how our parent is going to feel about this. Basically, I'm revealing family secrets on this podcast, and I've already revealed them in book form. So I've had this experience once before, but a podcast feels very intimate. And I feel that I'm going to like, it's going to be like, she's like the Bowser from Mario Brothers, just like the big boss coming back out, resurrecting herself. And so I wonder if you have any tips for artists, me in particular, or artists who are doing sensitive things about their families or their lives. How do I brace myself for with, I'm having so much anxiety about my parent being mad at me for saying what happened to me as a young person. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I want to first say I've listened to the trailer and the first episode, a cut of the first episode, and it's a really good podcast. And I am very excited to listen to it. It is very, very well done. Um, <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, this is this is something up for all kinds of artists and writers who write about their lives, who write autobiographically, who do anything memoir, who are talking about real people in their lives. And the thing is, like, you have to be able to do that because you have to document your experience or else we wouldn't have any experiences documented throughout history. And then of course there's consequences because other people have different versions of events or they don't want anything to ever be told to anyone ever. And there, I would say in a surprising twist, my first thought is your mom and anyone else, they get to have their reaction. They get to have all their feelings. They get to think and say whatever they want. They don't necessarily get to do that to you or with you. They can bring that other places. I would say how to prepare for something like this when you reasonably, rightfully so, anticipate a negative reaction and based on history, that reaction coming at you and toward you is to prepare yourself with the soft, gentle love of all the people in your life now for one thing. And you get to decide when and if you talk to your mom and for how long and how. And you get to use all the tools you have to, <clears throat> to listen, lovingly listen, and to end the conversation whenever you want. When you talk to that person, how long, at what point in time you do it, that you have choices. You don't have to make yourself available to somebody else's anger or um, outraged feelings. Their outrage and anger might be best served elsewhere. And someone disagreeing with you about your experience or someone not being happy with you doesn't mean you've done something wrong, as we know. Like someone being mad at me doesn't mean I did something wrong. And me telling the truth about my experience doesn't diminish another person's experience. Your mom can make a podcast. I mean. She actually does. She has a podcast. I can't believe we're not listening to it. Maybe I'll start. You're doing right by yourself and to your life by telling the story. And it just happens to be a really incredible story and it happens to be beautifully written and drawn about and now created into this audio story. And she will likely not like it. And that's okay. She didn't like the last thing either. And she doesn't like a lot of things about your life and the choices you make, but you have built an adult life surrounded by people who can reflect you back at you correctly and authentically and currently. So I would say decide the doses to which you'll subject yourself and have lots of medicine around those doses of, of, of your mom at any point when you decide to, if you, if, and when you decide to let any of her feedback in. Hmm. 
it, it, this is going to be a big go where it's warm period when this podcast comes out. It's going to be up to you to keep going over and over again to where it's warm, the people who love you and can support you, and for you to dig in and articulate what do you need? What kind of, because I think when people have big personal projects come out, they need things. It's so vulnerable to put anything out in the world. And this is a really vulnerable, tender story, and it's coming out in a new form. So although it came out in book form, it's coming out in a completely different form and now has other people's voices in it. And so that's really powerful. So you might have needs around it. You might be like, oh, I don't want to answer texts or emails for a week. I'm going to go offline. Or I need people to text me all day and tell me it's okay. Or to listen to it immediately and tell me they love it. You get to think about what might be soothing and comforting and loving for you immediately when this comes out. And then tell the people you know who can do those things. Ask over and over and over again. Go where it's warm repeatedly. Because it's not going to be warm from the places you're worried about. They could surprise you and you could be open to that too. But based on <laughs> based on the one-star reviews. <laughs> based on the, this this critic's particular taste as it re- regards my art. Uh, this, is, this is very good feedback. Thank you so much. So you can tell me, for instance, you can think about like, what do I need from Beth when my podcast comes out? What are specific things that I would like her to do, say, or offer? Mm. Um, I want to broaden this for listeners, but I want to say, Beth, thank you very much. I think this is valuable for me. It's valuable for anybody who's making a project like this. And for listeners, I want to say, I want to expand the go where it's warm thing to any time you need feedback for a project. I know people ask me this because they ask me about like editors and having friends edit my stuff or read my stuff. And I want to say I've had over and over again, Debbie Downer people that I know from my professional life offer to read my stuff and give me feedback. And I'm like, thank you, but no, thank you. And I try to go where it's warm. I try to go to people who can give me feedback that's both honest and useful and gentle and kind. Like people who are teachers are really good at this. People who understand where my art's going, who understand my potential or my best and know how to gently push me towards that not people that are judging me by some other standard or people that are so self-hating that they can't just reflect back um, kindness to me. Yeah. I recommend also to my clients all the time that um, they sometimes you're at a stage in a project in its development and creation that what it needs is somebody to look at it, read it, experience it, and say, this is what I like, keep going. It's just praise, keep going, praise, keep going. It might not be time for heavy lifting editing yet. And, and when it is time for that, like you're saying, Nicole, go where it's warm, go where the people who go to the people who are really smart, whose feedback, you know, will make the thing even better and see all the greatness that you have and can do. Yeah. And I mean, truly like what's podcast once, once it's out, I mean, there's no use for my friends to be like, you know, I actually didn't like this. That's actually like once the horse is out of the stable, you, you can't be talking about how to open the door anymore. Exactly. So when my book comes out and if you don't like it, there's no reason to tell me. There's just no reason. It already exists. It's not going to be revised. I'm not going to write that book again differently. So actually, you can take to Goodreads and Amazon if you want, but it will do nothing. What's what, If you don't like it and somebody says, should I buy this book? You can say, I didn't like it for these reasons. Sure, you don't have to lie, but you absolutely never have to tell me. It will do nothing. No, it'll just make you feel bad. And that's all. It just makes you feel bad. Yeah, I didn't really like your second book. Why on earth would you say that to somebody? <laughs> I, I mean, I, I do have to say, I still, 
somebody who is in my professional sphere who I respect referred to my second book as overly long. And I'd continue. All the, I was on this. I mean, when did that come out? Like four years ago or three years ago? I was on a hike the other day with myself, by with my dog, by myself. And I was just like overly long. And I was thinking about all the places where I could cut it. The book has oh been out God. for three fucking years. I'm not doing that's not happening. It's not getting cut. Right. It's getting right. made into a TV show. And I'm <laughs> I'm like that person thought it was over. that person who reviewed it for a small gay publication thought it was too long. <laughs> And I'm still Thanks. attached to that. So if. Right. Yeah. Anyway, don't read your and reviews. Don't read your reviews. Don't, <laughs> Go read, where it's don't warm. read reviews. Go where it's warm. Also, yeah, that thing's done now. I have to move on to the next thing. So like the an interesting thing about any about a book, you know, this so well, especially as a graphic novelist, graphic memoirist. This book that I wrote, it reflects me in 2018, 2019. So anybody who's like, well, you didn't talk about the pandemic pandemic. Well, bitch, I wrote it before the pandemic. Like it doesn't, <laughs> that time didn't exist. <laughs> so, um, it, it also no big long thing can be the thing of now because it wasn't made now. And to that end, I'm already a different person. If I were to sit down and rewrite this entire book, of course it would be different, not just because of the pandemic, but because I'm a year and a half, two years later in my life. So I already have different thoughts and opinions. Any book, I think I read this in Rebecca Solna. I can't remember who, what writer said this, but the effect was that a book, I think this was Rebecca Solnit Reflections on My Non-Existence, which is a great memoir that I just finished. And she writes that a book just reflects when the writer was writing it and the period before. You're looking into the thinking of before the writing. And I thought that was such a, it, it's not a diminutizing thing or a devaluing thing. It's just like you're looking a little bit at the past of somebody because books take a long time to write and a really long time to come out. This book was due summer 2019. It's been a while. It was definitely before the pandemic. <laughs> Which I'm so grateful for because, you know, this pandemic's going to end or change. And if this book was tailored to this very specific particular time, there's no physical way for it to come out unless it came out as an Instagram story. There's no physical way for this book to have come out in a way that would hit the exact moment because things are changing so rapidly in the political sphere and the vaccine sphere that I'm glad you made a book for the ages that I can apply to now through the filter of now. Right, right, right. Thanks for writing this book, Beth Dickens. Thank you. And thank you for championing the things that I do. And thank you for all the art you make, which has been so invaluable to my life. And I can't wait for your podcast. We have to celebrate big time when that comes out. I am a podcast lover. And so when a good podcast comes out, that's cause for celebration because podcasts, there's so many, it's really proliferated in form and most of them are pretty terrible. Um, and this, yours, Sagittarian Matters, mine, Cap mine, uh, my guest episodes, Capricorn Matters, my podcast, Mind Your Practice, all of which has a hand of Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs, who's editing and producing this episode. Um, hey. These are good podcasts. And this new one that you have coming out, like I said, I heard the first episode and it's fucking good. And I can't wait to hear the whole thing. Thank you, Mary Potter. I appreciate it. Thanks for coming on Capricorn Matters. I have a little Easter egg I'd like to offer to yeah. longtime Sagittarian Matters listeners who are probably listening right now. We'll re refer back many, many um, episodes ago when you and I talked about why am I attracted to straight men playing gay in movies? And the example um. we always talk about is Call Me By Your Name. 
And then Army uh, Hammer ended up being like such a chump. And I'm not mad at him for like his sexual fetishes because everyone has their fantasies. But it turns out he's just like a maybe a dick in other places and terrible to his wife and other women. And that sucks. But he was in my dream last night. And I just need longtime listeners of Sagittarius Matters to know Army Hammer was totally in my dream. And he was asking me if I thought he was hot. And I was like, yeah, of course you're hot. Like, that's not disputable. But you're only hot to me if you're gay. And I don't know why. Did you say and that I mean, to him? Ne- Yes. And I'll <laughs> never fully understand this in my waking life either. But I was like, yeah, of course you're hot. But you're only hot to me when you're gay. Was he disappointed? <laughs> I think he was. I think he was really into me in my dream. Which I must be ovulating. It's the only time I dream in any sexual way about about cisgendered men is like for sure when I'm ovulating. (laughs) Did he try to get you to just cut off a couple toes for him to snack on? You know, I do it. I I would not begrudge anybody their their fetishes and sexual fantasies like do it. It, I'm consenting. Like, here's the toe. Good luck swallowing that shit. There's calluses. (laughs) Well, there's more to chew on. It'll last longer. (laughs) It's disgusting. Corn? (laughs) <laughs> all of this can be cut if need be all of it carolyn there's a parrot that kaya and i like and all the things that the parrot says and the carrot like want some corn and so when we talk about feet the parrot's like oh corn <laughs> <laughs> broccoli corn <laughs> disgusting thanks beth thank you for this special crossover episode thank you so much for coming into mind your practice universe Everyone at Mind Your Practice Land, go listen to Sagittarian Matters. You will love that podcast. If you are a Mind Your Practice listener, you can do some of my self-help worksheets, which I think you might like. You can find them on my Instagram page. You can go to my Patreon page to support me, patreon.com slash Nicole J. Georges. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for listening to Mind Your Practice. And be sure to subscribe so you get all these bonus episodes coming your way. If you are an artist who likes to be told what to do, I am more than happy to boss you around through email and social media. You can find me on Instagram at at Beth Pickens Consulting and join my mailing list on my website, BethPickens.com. And you should definitely join my homework club where you'll get workshops, homework, and extra credit all for $15 a month. You can join through MindYourPractice.com. Oh, and be sure to pick up that brand new book, Make Your Art No Matter What, at your favorite bookstore. Those underwear, like they're they're not creeping, but they're not strangling my thighs. I actually like a thigh strangulation. Oh.